welcome to Peterson's Bowhunting Radio, the official podcast of hardcore bowhunters. From the latest archery equipment and expert shooting advice to proven bowhunting tactics and the sport's biggest personalities, we've got you covered. Now, here's your host, Editor Christian Bird. All right, welcome back to Peterson's Bowhunting Radio. We are the voice of bowhunting and are happy to be with you today and happy that you're with us. We have an absolutely dynamite show. I have on the line with me one of the leading ladies of bowhunting and an ambassador for the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, Christy Titus. Thank you for being on Peterson's Bowhunting Radio. Well, that was quite the introduction. I, I'm very humbled by that. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me on. Well, you are absolutely one of uh, you know the faces of uh, our sport today, and uh, certainly a, a more attractive face than I have. So it's always a pleasure uh, to be with uh, somebody like yourself. And uh, why don't you tell me what you've been up to with the Elk Foundation? I know that you're a regular on their Team Elk uh, TV show. Uh, what what have, mm-hmm. what have you been doing out there in the field this past year? Did you have a good elk season? Oh, we had a great elk season, and, and uh, I'm very blessed. You know, as part of a uh, featured member being of, of Team Elk Television Show, um, I'm fortunate enough to take some really extraordinary people on hunts. Um, and this season had it was just chock full of fabulous memories. I, I took. Um, I took a young man on an elk hunt, his first elk hunt, where he was successful and overcame some challenges and, and you know, kept a really positive mental attitude. Uh, I took Erin Cox from Winchester Ammunition on her first bull elk hunt, which was incredible. Um, it's going to be an epic show. I actually called in off of the mountain over a hundred head of elk and they literally came in on a stampede to 20 yards. I've never had anything like that happen before. It was mind blowing. It was crazy. Um, and then, uh, you know, I, I, I do a lot of elk calling in, in the past. I took second a couple of times in the world elk calling championships and won a muzzle loader and, and got a really beautiful bull in New Mexico on public land with, with my muzzle loader that I won. And, uh, so there's lots of great stories coming out there of, of people that love the outdoors and hunting, women, kids, uh, you know, following your passion through public land hunting. And, and that's what Elk Foundation is really about is creating a community and inspiring and encouraging people, no matter what their age is or, or gender, to get out there and enjoy in outdoors and enjoy um, elk country and wild places. Absolutely. Um, how long have you been with the Elk Foundation now? I think six years, roughly. Um, since season one of Team Elk, basically, I, I filmed with them. And it started out pretty small where I did, I think my first hunt was a cow hunt. And it took me 10 days to get a cow elk. It was <laughs> pretty crazy, but I ended up pulling it off. And um, we've we've kind of grown on our partnership and relationship since then. Yeah, well, time flies when you're having fun. And don't feel bad about needing 10 days to kill a cow. I think, you know, based on my elk hunting experiences, sometimes it feels like it's harder to kill a cow than it is to kill a bull you know because the bulls different times you know can be a little bit vulnerable especially in the rut you know but the cows Mm -hmm. are always wary and there's usually a lot of them so it's not it's not as easy as people think well sometimes you just can't hunt what isn't there (laughs) so you know just putting on lots of miles just to find 
find them sometimes is, is what you have to do. Yeah. That's it. That's another big part of elk hunting. As you know, everyone who's listening, who's done any amount of elk hunting, you know, it's, I had one of those hunts in Colorado back in September myself. I, I had a lot of long walks in the mountains and, uh, just, yeah. just didn't see a lot of elk, but, uh, that's part of the game. Um, so where can people see Team Elk? When are these, uh, you know, adventures that you just mentioned going to be aired? So it's airing on the outdoor channel. Um, so third and fourth quarter of this year, I'll be running all new episodes from last year. And then also RMES on March 3rd is launching elknetwork.com, um, which will have all of the previous issues of Team Elk in a free um, downloadable streamable 24-hour format where you can watch all those prior episodes as well. Oh, cool. So a couple different places to check Christy out and uh, some of her hunting adventures. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, Christy, I know that just recently, of course, politics has been, I say recently, probably for the last year plus, politics has been big. Uh, But I know with Mm -hmm. the new administration coming in and uh, just as we've headed here through January and, and into February, conservation and issues related to particularly public land conservation have been big mm-hmm. in the news. Um, I know that uh, RMEF has been very involved, uh, as you mentioned already, as an advocate for public lands and, and our access mm-hmm. to those as hunters. Tell me what's been going on, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, proposed legislation and regulations and what are some of the hot issues that we as hunters need to be aware of these days? Well, RMES has been a proponent for public land access from day one. And now, obviously, I do not speak on behalf of RMES. I'm kind of coming from my own take here. But uh, so far, we have opened or improved access for hunters, outdoorsmen, and, and anybody really to gain better access to our public lands. We've, we've done increase that access to a million acres. So prior to the Rocky Mountain Oak Foundation in 1984, there's a million acres where we couldn't reach public lands um, and have access to those. And we've opened or improved access to that for everybody to get out and hunt and enjoy wild places, which that is the foundation and the core of, you know, a lot of what the Elk Foundation does. They want to make sure that we have wild places to not only hunt, but hike and fish and spend quality time with our families. And um, that that's really one of the big, I think, feathers in our of cap is that they are, are constantly working to make sure that we all have a better place and more places to go. So whether it be access or habitat improvement, uh, land stewardship, things like that, RMEF is definitely spearheading those projects constantly. Yeah, it's, we have, you know, we have 10,000 uh, volunteers on the ground that are um, doing on the ground type conservation work from, you know, pulling down old barbed wire fences to help um, calves get a better chance in the spring to, uh, uh, you know, doing controlled burns, adding water guzzlers. Um, it, it, the, the work is just never ending, you know, helping restore elk herds and they're really uh, wonderful stewards of the land. Our volunteers are incredible people. Yeah, and like you said, it's not – obviously, a lot of that is built around the idea 
of helping elk, but it's not just elk mm-hmm. because it's all wildlife. Yeah, exactly. And places to just enjoy the outdoors. So whether you're, you know, a diehard elk hunter or just somebody who, who loves wild places, the RMEF is, you know, and the work that you guys do is something that we can really get behind. Um, Absolutely. I know that you guys have a campaign. I think you said it started up last year called Hunting is Conservation. Uh, That's correct. Tell me a little bit about that campaign. What's that all about and how can, you know, maybe, you know, the people who are listening who are, you know, avid hunters get involved with that? Well, the Rocky Mountain Health Foundation spearheaded a program or a kind of an online social sharing program called Henning is Conservation. And, you know, we all know the North American Wildlife Conservation Model founded by Theodore Roosevelt and Aldo Leupold. Um, and they spearheaded this whole conservation model, how it works, how hunters are um, – paying for tags, licenses, and fees that are funding conservation work. So if you think about it this way, um, state licenses and tag fees annually create just shy of $800 million a year, which is 75% of the annual income for state conservancy agencies, right? So um, we create that fund by buying state licenses and tags. That, that's $800 million a year. Um, the Pittman-Robertson Act is a taxation that goes on firearms, ammunition, archery equipment. And annually, that taxation is creating eight, um, $371 million a year. So huge numbers of financial means are being put into conservation works on the ground through four state agencies because of hunters. Yeah, so so um, and just and not to interrupt, but I'm just doing the math as you're talking. So between the the licenses that we buy, you know, across the country and the equipment that we buy, that's like mm-hmm. almost 1.2 billion dollars a year in funding that we're providing for conservation agencies. It actually is 1.6 billion. Oh, okay. <laughs> as where you know, once you figure in, um, you know, what we do on the fishing side as well. Um, it's $1.6 billion. Wow. And we're also creating 680,000 jobs in rural areas. So RMES has done an incredible job at launching the Hunting is Conservation campaign. And what it does is originally the last, the first year of inception kind of went through and gave a big picture of how Hunting is Conservation, what we do, how the money we, we generate annually, cumulatively. Um, and then now what they're going through and doing is a state-by-state breakdown of in every state how hunters are impacting local economies. And that is, is shareable through infographics on social media. I post them on my pages. RMEF posts them on their pages. And it really, you know, when I have anti-hunters kind of come at me and call me a horrible person for being a hunter, I can take these infographic facts and I can fight them um, with education and say, okay, well, you know, we are, have 7 million acres conserved or enhanced since 1984. What have you done? And go back to them and put it on them to tell me, you know, hey, what have you done to help conservation as a whole? Because I'm really proud 
as a hunter and to be a hunter of the work that we have done for wildlife, wild places, and for the world as a whole. And once you put it back on some of those anti-groups and start asking them poignant questions and giving them facts on, on true, tangible goals that we have achieved as conservationists, they typically delete and block me. <laughs> I, and, and people say all the time, well, don't you have antis attack you all the time? And it's like, no, because I don't fight them with emotional-based narratives. I come at them with facts. And you cannot refute the facts that the hunters are the greatest conservations in the world. And uh, it's, you know, it's, we've got, the United States has the most uh, successful wildlife management system in the world. And hunters and anglers have contributed more financial and physical support to that than any other group or individual. And once you put those facts in front of those people, they can't refute it. And um, so it's the hunting is conservation campaign for everybody out there, you know, go online, check it out, get on social media, check it out and really arm yourself with facts and, and be a proud hunter. You know, stand tall. It's not only just for the provision of meat for the, for the table. It's not just a family legacy. We are really improving the face of this nation for, for all wildlife. Oh, absolutely. So, and, and that's the neat thing is you guys have done uh, a tremendous job of highlighting, you know, the role that we're playing as sportsmen in, mm-hmm. in, in that work. So, so you know, I, every time, you know, I buy a hunting license uh, or, you know, a new bow or even a dozen arrows, you know, I'm doing something to, to help For wildlife, which, you know, like you say, people who, not just the anti-hunters, although those are the ones who attack us, of course, but just the average person who might go out and enjoy, mm-hmm. you know, hiking on the weekend, they're not necessarily, not that they are intentionally doing They're not funding that conservation. Right, exactly. They're not taking an active role. And so mm-hmm. that's important that we need They're to. They're enjoying the benefit that we're providing them. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, uh, you guys in particular, I mean, I really do commend the RMEF because when you think about not just uh, what you guys have done, uh, you know, with the habitat in the traditional, you know, elk range, but even your involvement in doing so many things like here in Pennsylvania where I live, you guys were instrumental, you know, in helping to, you know, increase and, re- you know, the, the reintroduced herd here, uh, Kentucky, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, I think Tennessee has elk now. So many places where you guys are helping to bring elk back and places that there weren't uh, elk for, for many, many decades and, you know, hunting opportunities that exist here in the East that never would have maybe come to be if not for, you know, the advocacy that RMEF has done. So I just commend you guys and certainly appreciate all that you do and what you stand for to help spread that message. Absolutely. Well, it's, uh, it's something that needs to be out there and, and, we need to combat this anti-narrative and really start standing up for who we are. And if we don't, the media does not tell and spin how conservation is funded. They don't tell the story of the hunter and the pivotal role that we play. So it is up to us as hunters to tell that story. Yeah. And before, you know, we move on, I want to move on and and talk about you a little bit, but I do want to kind of wrap up this segment on the elk foundation by telling people, you know, you don't have to be a a diehard elk hunter or or a, a guy who, you know, travels out to Montana every year to chase big bulls to support what the RMF is RMEF is doing uh, I'm sure that Christy wouldn't mind if you went on uh, the Elk Foundation website uh, got yourself a membership uh, and just got yourself plugged into some of the great things that they're doing <laughs> 
absolutely. I mean, there's great chapters in states that don't have elk herds. Uh, Indiana is a state that I go to um, almost every year for their, there's two banquets there. And um, Jim and Leanne Craig were the founders of the bank, the original chapter in the Indiana chapter. And they've won conservationist of the year with RMEF in 2015. And there's no elk in Indiana. Um, and so the people that are attending those banquets are attending it not because they're enjoying elk in their, their home state. They're attending them because they understand the bigger picture. And that's, that's the beauty of Elk Foundation and its members is that we get the big picture and we see what is really happening to our country as a whole and the benefit that RMEF is providing, regardless of whether your state has elk hunting or not. Absolutely. So if you want more information on the Elk Foundation, you can visit uh, rmef.org. And uh, lots of great resources there. And, uh, you know, it is truly uh, one of the, certainly one of the handful of, of conservation groups uh, across the country that has, you know, done as much, you know, as any for not only for elk and, and elk habitat, but for our sporting heritage. So, again, thanks for your involvement with that. Now, I wanted to talk a little bit about your background because this whole topic, topic uh, of, of women in bow hunting is it's a kind of a big deal for us here at Peterson's Bow Hunting. I had mentioned to you that we're working on a package for our June issue, uh, really highlighting some of the top women that we have in the sport today, of which you're certainly one. But just on a larger scale, you know, there's been a lot of talk in recent years about the fact that I think as a whole, bow hunting, you know, the sport, it's not, it's not actually been booming. I'd say that probably our overall participation numbers are, you know, probably pretty stagnant over the last five to 10 years. But one bright spot, uh, um, you know, in spite of that has been the increasing number of ladies that we've had coming in as, mm-hmm. as archers and as bow hunters. You know, it's funny, this wasn't broken down just for archer. I happened to see a news story here in Pennsylvania just last week in one of the newspapers um, based on the sales data from licensed sales here in PA last year. One in 10 of our hunters here in Pennsylvania is now female. So that's great. Mm-hmm. And I think that was, it was like a 40 some percent increase over the last Absolutely. decade. So it's great to see, you know, more ladies coming into the sport. And obviously mm-hmm. we need all the growth that we can find wherever we can find it. Um, tell me a little bit about your background as a woman in the outdoors, Christy. Where did you grow up and how did you get introduced to hunting and bow hunting specifically? It's been a crazy journey. So my parents we have mules and I was raised with mules. And so from the time I was two years old, my family would spend our weekends. We would hobby pack and we would pack into the back country and fish high lakes. And my dad was a hunter is a hunter. And uh, that's how I grew up. You know, never went to Disneyland, never did traditional. I was never into sports. I was a pretty chunky kid and wasn't athletic. And I rode my mules and hung out in the woods and fished and shot rabbits and shotguns and that's that's what I did and so I don't really know anything else you know I I think I tried my hand at softball once but that wasn't really good for me but um so yeah I mean I don't know anything different other than being in the backcountry um and and being on the back of a mule and and spending my time in wild places like that's what I live for and and And, so where, um, where was this Christy where was this 
in Oregon here where I live. Okay, um, gotcha. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and then I didn't actually bow hunt until my 20s and uh, early 20s, which I guess now I've been bow hunting for like 16 years. <laughs> so uh, I was introduced to bow hunting by a boyfriend actually. And, and you hear this story a lot from, from ladies in the industry, especially. And um, I had a boyfriend who introduced me to bow hunting. And, and because I started bow hunting with him, my dad actually started bow hunting. So in a, indirectly, I got my father introduced to bow hunting as well. Um, and since I put a bow in my dad's hand, he's never picked up a gun. <laughs> since, so we only bow hunt. Well, I mean, I rifle hunt also, but he only bow hunts now. Um, but what really got me hooked on archery hunting was calling elk. Mm. And um, when I was 13 years old, I watched my dad call in a bull after watching him practice in our living room with VHS cassette tapes and stuff. And, um, in my twenties, I took that interest in calling elk, coupled it with bow hunting and created it literally reinvented my whole life. Um, and I, there were so, I was so hungry to learn and there was so much that I wanted to know about hunting and the outdoors that, I started getting involved with Safari Club and organizing events on the ground for, you know, GPS orientation. I brought in Peter Kummerfelt to teach survival classes. Um, I, I worked with my local pistol range and, and organized women's shooting groups. And so philanthropically, my desire to be hungry for this information and this knowledge spearheaded my career indirectly. And it led me into becoming on the board of directors for SCI. And then I was vice president. And then I was president of a chapter. I went to Washington, D.C. in my early 20s. And I lobbied um, on Capitol Hill with SCI for Hunter's Rights. And, um, that was the foundation of my career. I, I helped launch, um, the transition from she safari to she outdoor apparel and, um, rebrand that company with the, the then owner at that time. Um, and basic, I designed the new she logo actually. Um, and, uh, what I would do with my dealers is I would say, look, if you guys book my women's apparel line, I'll come in and do seminars for women to get them in the store. So they buy the clothes, they'll buy gear, their husbands will shop while the ladies are learning. And it's a, it's a very friendly interactive environment where a woman is learning from another woman. Cause there has to be other women out there that want to learn, you know, what I've grown up knowing in his second nature to me. And, um, that's, that started all of this. It was, you know, I never in my wildest dreams imagined that, that I would become one of the women that really are the first crusaders, first women out there, you know, getting women in the sport, you know, help design the launch in the, the transition of she outdoor apparel. Um, I helped under armor start their women's hunt division originally, um, with the team there. And, uh, and and then you know moved on to Cabela's with Outfit Her and um so it's been an incredible journey that I mean I'm beyond blessed that you know just being some Western girl on the back of a mule has uh, helped really change the face of of the lady hunter and the opportunities we have across the nation. Yeah. So you mentioned you know your career in the outdoors. Did you? What were you doing before you came into the outdoors? Were you working full time like with some of these women's apparel companies, or did you have a a whole different kind of job history before you were able to transition more fully into the outdoors? Well, I've always been self-employed. So in high school, I owned a catering company 
and I had my parents' kitchen at home licensed and I ran a catering company. And then I went into real estate and I was selling real estate and also project manager for new construction subdivisions. And when the market crashed in 07, 08 is when I got out of that and went full time to work for She Outdoor Apparel. And then I transitioned into working for Under Armour. And when I departed my um, tenure at Under Armour, then I started working completely 100% as an independent spokesperson in the industry. So that's been, I guess, about seven years. Extremely ambitious person, right? We can say yes. Yeah. <laughs> I work a lot, yeah. That is awesome. Yeah. That is awesome. You're like the definition of a self-starter, I guess. Yeah, well, I always have been. I mean, I've never had like a traditional job. I've always owned a company. I mean, 16 years old running a catering company is pretty crazy. Yeah, but. sounds like we might be able to have you a whole nother show sometime just talking about cooking. If you were owning your own catering company at 16, I think you might be the one that I want like making my elk for me after we get one. Well, stay tuned because I, I contributed to the Wilderness Athlete Cookbook, The Wild Kitchen, and um, I have a cooking series that I'm bringing to people digitally on my YouTube channel, as well as some other things that are going to be coming to that as well. But uh, wild cooking and kitchen cooking, uh, kind of a field to the fork movement is going to be on there. Food dehydration for backcountry hunts, uh, making jerky, uh, healthy cooking at home. So yeah, absolutely stay tuned for that because that's, that's a whole new turn that my career is taking this year into some digital format work and in some places for people to get a lot of really awesome resources tips, tactics, education. I mean, really, that's been the mission of my entire adult life, and, and I'm now broadening that into a digital platform, so I'm pretty excited. But, yeah, but yeah that, check out my YouTube page. That's awesome. That's really awesome. So, listen, I want to steer back to the bow hunting a little bit. Tell me tell mm-hmm. me about your first successful bow hunt for elk. When was that, and, and can you share that story with me? Yeah, for sure. So, it's kind of a two, two-year story. Um my dad and I were bow hunting together. It was the second to the last day of season and he shot a spike bull with me. And um we we walked out that night and the next day was the last day of season and my dad's like, Well, you know, you're gonna wanna do a morning hunt but we were it was six the bull was six miles from the trailhead, cross country where we'd shot it and we wanted to pack it out with the mules, but I wanted to hunt. I had these elk patterns where they were coming through this meadow every morning and there was a herd of like eighty head and um so the next morning I walked in cross country by myself and I'm going to tell you, it was like the scariest thing ever. Cause I, <laughs> I'd never done it a hundred percent alone. Um, my dad was always behind me or, you know, someone was always with me. And so walking in cross country, I remember thinking, you know, if I sit down right now in four hours, my dad's going to be here with the mules and we'll go pack out this bowl. And I, you know, just was motivation for me to keep taking steps. And so I got to this meadow where these elk had moved through and I missed the herd because I was a little probably slower than I should have been. I wasn't as confident to get there on time, I guess, as mm-hmm. I should be. Right. But I sat there and I sat, sat down in, in these little um, pine, this little pine thicket and I started calling. And I had the bull was below me, but he was on private land and I couldn't go down to him. And, and so I'm calling back and forth to this bull and I'm just having fun and I'm just totally engrossed in it. And all of a sudden I look up and there's antlers coming. And this five by five satellite bull had come right in 45 yards. And at the time, 45 yards for me, you know, this is like 16 years ago where bows aren't what they are today. And 45 yards is a really, really long shot for me. And, and 
Yeah, I was what, never what, called in an elk. What are you shooting? What bow did you have? At that time, I had a, a Hoyt, and I don't even, I think it was a, I don't know if it was a Sierra Tech. I don't even remember what it was. It was a Hoyt something. Um, and I, I was so excited. I literally did not draw my bow. Like I sat there and was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this elk just came in. The bull was slightly quartered to me. You know, now I would have just blasted him, you know, but at the time I just didn't have the confidence. I'd never done a bow hunt by myself. I'd never called in a bull on public land by myself. And I just kind of, just kind of froze. And, and I, I, there's a lot of people that have done the same thing. And I call it the bull that haunts because for a year, you know, I thought about that moment and how I blew it, you know, I'm like, God, I can't believe I didn't draw my bow. I didn't even get an arrow out. I mean, even though at that time, like I said, it was a really long shot for me. Um, but one year later, almost to the day, I brought my dad back to that same spot. And, um, cause I knew the pattern of the elk and I'm like, they're going to do it again this year. You know, once you get a pattern on elk, if they stay resident elk, you can kind of count on them a little bit, you know? Mm-hmm. And, um, and, I went back in and, um, in the exact same spot, I shot my first branch bull with a bow and it was a real nice five by five bull. And my dad was by my side and I mean, I was cool because I had planned the whole hunt. I knew exactly what I wanted to do. I knew where I wanted to set up. I mean, I thought about it for a year and that was probably one of the greatest days of my life. Like, you know, public land DIY. Yeah. My dad was with me, but it was my hunt. And, um, the confidence that I got from those two years literally changed my life. And that's what I always tell women. Like if you go out there and you're hunting and you're afraid to take those steps, you know, trust your equipment, trust your GPS, learn how to use it, get confident with it and start small one step in front of the other. If you're only comfortable going a mile from the truck, hunt a mile from the truck and pretty soon you'll build to where you're like, Hey, you just turn on your GPS and you go and you think about it. You know, you go all day long and you know, my mom thinks I'm crazy. Um, but, you know, you, you know, building that confidence in your equipment, yourself and your skill set. And, um, and it, yeah, it was life changing. And, and also with elk calling specifically too, like, you know, before I was afraid to blow my calls because I didn't sound that good and I wasn't that good. And I thought, well, I'll never call in an elk. But when you're sitting there in the woods by yourself and apparently you sound all right because an elk just comes in, it's very empowering to tell people, you know, don't be afraid to make those sounds because elk don't sound perfect and bulls will sound different. Cows will sound different. And you'd be surprised what you could accomplish with something that is, you know, less than perfect sounding, you know, just get out there and, and try. And if you, you're going to make mistakes, you're going to stumble, you're going to fall. You're going to look back and say, man, I wish I would have done this differently. You just got to learn from it and, and keep trying. And that's, you know, that's what's incredible about it. You know, there's little kids that are, you know, five, 10 years old that are good elk callers that could literally go out in the woods right now and call in an elk. Um, and that's incredible as a parent um, to include your kids in too. So what are your, what are your uh, best elk calling tips for those of us who like you, you know, I know even myself, I'm, I'm an Eastern guy. I've, I've hunted elk, you know, some uh, had some success, but hardly consider myself an expert or overly ca- mm-hmm. confident elk caller. Um, you know, what are some of the basics that I need to know, you know, to, to go out there and, and like you say, you know, get, get some elk to not only to answer me, but maybe get into bow range. 
Yeah, you know, that's a really long question. (laughs) (laughs) I could go on for hours answering. So, you know, one thing is I am doing a YouTube series of tips and tactics. So later this year, you guys will be able to go on my YouTube channel um, at Chrissy Titus or Chrissy the Wild. And I'm going to have a whole series about this specifically, how to make sound tips. You know, they're going to go into these details of situation scenarios. Rocky Jacobson from Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls is going to work on this series with me. And then also incorporate elk sounds into that. So short answer though, you know, if I have a bull that is being vocal, I don't talk to him. I go hunt him. I get the wind in my advantage. I get the train in my advantage and I hunt him stealthily. Um, less is always more with elk. Um, they can pinpoint your location to a foot. Um, when you make a sound an elk knows where you are. So, um, you know, less is more for me. If I have a bull locating, I'll go hunt him. That's what I am. I'm a hunter. Second of all, um, if you're making a sound, be ready for an elk to come in because sometimes you'll have guys that'll just start blowing a call and a bull will jump out of their bed a hundred yards away and you don't even know they're there and they're on top of you and you're caught with your pants down. You know, you're not ready. Your bow's not in your hand. You're standing out in the wide open. And I, and I tell people this because every year it never fails. I get frustrated. And I'll do something stupid and a bull will sneak in on my, on my 20 and catch me with my pants down. And, and I'll look at my dad and I'll be like, yeah, I just did that again. Like every year never fails that I get frustrated and I do something stupid and call in an elk and I'm not ready. So, you know, always just even before you hit your calls, plan in mind, you know, have a tree behind you or brush or something where you can break up your outline or have your bow ready, have an arrow knock. You know, just kind of be prepared because you never know. And and every year I do the same mistakes. (laughs) It's another one. Um, But uh, the wind is the wind is everything. An elk can see you, uh, but if he smells you, game over. You know, every time. Um, The wind, 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 wind. You know. What 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 are your favorite um, What are your favorite calls? You know, I don't mean brand, but but type style. Well, it's interesting you ask that. I'm launching my own elk call line this year. Um, we Jeez, have samples and every time out. every time I bring something up, you're like, oh yeah, and by the way, you know, I've got my own brand of this, and I'm going to have a whole yeah. series on that. Is there anything that you don't do, Christy? I'm trying. I'm trying to do it all, but it's it's gonna it's the Christy Titus collection. It's going to be co-branded with my digital series called Pursue the Wild. Um, so my cow calls will be the Wild Frenzy, Ignite Her Wild, and um, uh, what is it? Oh, Wild Fury. So that's the three-part series. So we'll have a bugle, uh, tube, an external read cow call, and then a diaphragm cow call. And do you have personal favorites that you like? I'm a diaphragm cow call user personally, and I use it for bugling. And there's two types of cow calls. There's a pallet plate diaphragm, which has a metal top. And then there's a tone top cow call, which has a plastic top. I'm not a plastic top fan. I like the metal top. Everybody's kind of different. My call series will be a pallet plate call system um, because that's what I like. Um, But each cow call, each read, I should think, they don't just cow call, they also bugle. Each diaphragm call will have a different thickness of latex. Some will have single latex, some will have double latex. They'll be stretched differently so you can get different octaves and pitches out of them. So, you know, for me personally, I have my favorite sound and my favorite diaphragm, and those are the ones I use you might have a different favorite that you like. 
And so that's what's really nice like, about Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls is they have a wide variety of different types of diaphragm calls for people that have, you know, different enjoyment level from the sound that those calls make when they're using them. Um, I think mine's awesome that I'm coming out with, my cow calls. <laughs> right. Um, but, uh, yeah, uh, and it'll be called the Igniter Wild. But, um, yeah, it's uh, a lot of different types of cow calls with of the diaphragms themselves. And, you know, again, in my digital series, I'll cover all of this stuff for people as well. Now, do you have an opinion on, you know, some of the more simple calls that are out there? You know, people a lot of times want to go for something like, you know, like a hoochie mama from Primos because mm-hmm. all you have to do is squeeze the thing and it'll make a cow call. Is that, uh, you know, in your opinion, is that something you used when you were a new elk hunter? And, uh, you know, does that have a place out there for people? For sure. I've totally used that type of cow call. And it's very empowering, especially you take a little kid out and they can just push the button and make an elk sound and that's really exciting um you know on high pressured educated elk those calls become less and less effective because you have a hundred guys out in the woods pushing the same call making the same sound and the elk get very educated to that sound um which is in my opinion why it's really important to learn how to use a diaphragm call so that you can i can meet a bull on his level i can have a bull bugle at me and I can bugle back at him and sound exactly like him, or I can rise up and challenge him, or I can cut down and sound like a young bull. So I can take, because I've got the vocabulary of elk, um, and I can take and sound like an elk, and I can change the way I sound. I can make myself sound like a herd of 50 elk, or I can make myself sound like a lost calf. Um, and that's the beauty of having the diversity with the diaphragm call that doesn't afford you with the push calls. Sure. And so practice and experience in the field are the two things that you need to, you know, to breed the confidence to do the things that you mm-hmm. do now, you know, routinely. And a lot of people don't have the opportunity to have the experience in the field, but there's there's opportunity. You know, Steve Chappell's got some YouTube stuff out there you can watch and learn and practice at home. Um, Rocky Mountain Hunting Club has a DVD series of kind of how-to, and they've got a hunt, like a lot of the DVDs have hunt strategies where they show you, you know, where bulls are coming in and what they did, what they did wrong, and you can watch that in the comfort of your home. So you're more, you have more tools when you get out in the woods, like, oh, well, on the DVD, they did this, let's try it. If it doesn't work, you go, well, those guys were idiots, that didn't work for us, or, you know what I mean, or like, oh, those, this bull didn't respond that way, or, you know, whatever, like, you, you just play with it, and you can kind of gain some experience in your living room. You don't have to necessarily have the opportunity to be in the woods, but there are resources out there for you to become um, more competent from your home. And that's what I'm really hoping my digital series this year with Rocky that we're creating will provide an, provide an environment where at home people can learn how to make cow sounds, how to make calf sounds, how to make bull sounds, and talk about some things that have worked for us and things that don't, um, and those strategies. So when they get in the field, they step out there, and if they have a bull answer them, um, in, in my opinion, they're going to be like, all right, we had one answer. Let's go get it. Let's get the wind. Where do we need to go? They can instantly go into hunt strategy instead of going, well, crud, now what do we do? Right. You know, um, that's, that's, I really want people to go through my series and it's going to be all things, shooting sports, um, tips, tactics, all kinds of things and have more confidence to approach more situations. Let's talk a little bit about archery tackle when it comes to your bow hunting. Um, mm-hmm. I know you mentioned, uh, you know, a couple sponsors that you had, Trophy Taker Rest and Ramcat mm-hmm. Broadheads. You like uh, a fixed blade broadhead for your elk hunting? Yeah, you know, in Oregon, that's, I have, you know, that's what's legal. So okay. I use a fixed blade. 
um, we don't, we are not, we are, expandables aren't legal here. So I've been using the diamond back, you know, it's got a great, uh, cut on contact and it's got, a, you know, concave swoop technology. So it creates its own airfoil that allows the wind, um, planing and it leads it, you know, to just pinpoint accuracy. I mean, it just shoots like a rocket and it's devastating. The penetration that that broadhead gets is incredible. And, um, you know, for me having a, a lower draw weight and lower draw length, having something that is cut on contact that is devastating like that is really, really important to me. And that broadhead has been absolutely fabulous, really, really terminal performance on it. Now, yeah, let's talk about that a little bit because, again, you know, when you think about an elk, especially a big bull, you're thinking about a big, a big tough animal, right? So maybe, yeah. you know, women might be a little bit intimidated to think, well, maybe I don't have enough energy to chase an animal like that. Tell people, you know, what is your draw length? What is your draw weight? How much do your arrows weigh? What kind of kinetic energy are you getting? And, and what kind of results are you seeing on the elk that you shoot? Yeah, so my draw weight is 52 pounds. So I have a 40 to 50 pound uh, Cabela's Fortitude elbow, and my draw length is 26 inches. Now, that bow, I've also shot in the past, like super fast, high performing, the DNA SP. I shot that with Team Elk for a while. And my Fortitude elbow is only one foot per second slower than that. DNA was. So, um, it's an extremely fast bow. What I love about it is it draws like butter. Um, really, really easy draw cycle. Very forgiving. My shoulder burns out really fast with some draws on different bows that are a little more radical. Um, and that bow to me has been, you know, just an incredible bow to shoot. Um, and it's, it's made for women. You know, you can get it in a 40 to 50 or 50 to 60. It's got a huge range of adjustment on the draw length. It goes from 23 and a half inches to 28 inches. So you can have somebody that might be 10, 12 years old shooting this bow, um, you know, at 40 pounds. And then, you know, as they grow, the bow will grow with them as well. Um, which is, I mean, I think really important. And for ladies, you know, for me, for years, I had to settle with bows that they were, the draw length was too long. I couldn't get them to fit me. And um, it was really, really frustrating. So, you know, having that lower draw length availability has been, you know, set this, it's, in my mind, it sets this bow apart for sure. sure. The IBO on it's 300 feet a second. I mean, it's a fast bow. So, so it, uh, you know, again, so at 26 inches and 52 pounds, um, you have any idea uh, what arrow weight you're typically hunting with? My arrows were 7.2 grains an inch. They're 26 inches long, 100 grain broadhead. I'd have to do the math on it. Um, 26 times 7.2? Yep. So plus 100? Mm-hmm. So you're probably, I mean, you're, I'm coming in a little under 300 there. I know you got an insert, some veins. You're probably, you're probably not too much over, you know, 300 grains or 325 grains. So again, this isn't a super stout setup that we're talking about, but yet you've been, you know, a very successful elk hunter with this. And, you know, tell me what kind of, you know, end results you're typically seeing with your setup in terms of, uh, what I'm getting at here is, you know, if you have a good, well-placed shot, you know, the, the equipment that you're shooting is more than adequate to get the job done out there. Tell me about, you know, the kind of penetration that you're typically getting on your elk hunts. So I shot a bull a couple of years ago at 60 yards and he 
he expired on camera. Shot placement, shot placement, shot placement, right? Um, and that did not pass all the way through, um, but incredible penetration. I mean, like literally the bowl tipped over this year. I shot a, a buck um, with my bow and complete pass through. And I've been using the Cabela's Stalker Extreme arrows this year. I've also, I'm a big, small, small diameter fan. So as far as I'm concerned for ladies and small stature shooters, the smaller the diameter of the, the arrow, the better. Um, you've got victory with armor piercing arrows that are small micro diameter Easton's injections. I'm a big fan of Easton injections as well. Um, the deep six insert, you know, is a little rough kind of figuring out at first, but you know, they make outserts now where you can do an outsert on those deep six if you want to use those and, um, been really happy with those. But this year I shot the stalker extreme slightly larger diameter than like the deep six. But when you get in a bind and you're on the road and you got to go pick up broadheads or you need to pick up equipment, the standard insert on those is more plug and play, a lot more user friendly. Yeah. Um, well, you know, what's so, funny. I, I actually recommend those stalker extreme arrows to a lot of mm-hmm. my friends locally here because they're a little, let, let the listeners in on a little secret. They're Easton shafts and, uh, they are mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, they're about $80 a dozen fletched with blazer veins and mm-hmm. they're perfectly good. And they're probably all you, you know, I'm not going to say that they're the greatest arrow in the whole world, but they're, more than adequate for anything you'd ever really want to go kill. They are. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, so it's for, for guys who don't want to spend two or three hundred dollars a dozen on yeah. arrows, you know, the Stalker Extreme's a, a perfectly viable choice and, and I've seen lots and lots of uh, critters, you know, killed with them. So. Oh, yeah. I was thrilled with mine this year. I mean, they worked extremely well and, uh, you know, broadhead is really what you got to look at. When you hit any type of bone on a big game animal, obviously Obviously, that's usually like, oh, like, yeah, don't want to hit those shoulders on elk. You don't want to hit that stuff. You know, it's, it makes your, your penetration level decrease significantly, you know, hitting those big rib bones. Um, but a lot of it to me is a good broadhead. Um, your broadhead leads the way for your arrow to get in there. And you need to have a well-constructed cut-on-contact broadhead that's going to deliver, a, you know, carve out that devastating wound channel. And, um, you know, the Diamondback broadheads for me have done that. And, you know, to follow up, you know, with a good arrow like the Stalker Extreme or a Deep Six, you know, but Easton's making both of them. Um, and you can get both both arrows through Cabela's. Um, it's a great option for women that that need something that's going to that get in there and reach those vital organs with a shorter draw length and weight. Yeah, um, you know, last thing I kind of want to talk on before we wrap it up, a little bit more specifically on, you know, women in bow hunting. In your mind, Christy, you've been doing this for a long time now, um, and you've mm-hmm. had the opportunity, obviously, to hunt with lots of guys and, and lots of ladies. Is there anything inherently different about being a female bow hunter versus a male bow hunter? No. Short answer. No, we can right? do it. No, I mean, there's nothing. I mean, this. I'm not a big fan of the word huntress. I'm a hunter. Um, I think that hunting as a sport is unisex, unilateral. It's not a gender. I don't need to classify that I'm a girl because I can do anything a guy can do. And the equipment out there that these manufacturers are putting together affords women the opportunity to be on an even playing field in the woods with a man. 
Right. And what's the biggest, uh, you know, selling point or obstacle uh, when it comes to maybe getting uh, some new female participants into bow hunting? I don't think there's as much an obstacle anymore. It's just a desire for a woman to do it. And, you know, a lot of women like to feel like they have a community and, um, you know, getting involved in a community, finding other women that enjoy shooting, finding, you know, a friend or family that shoots. In, in creating a family event out of it. I mean, in my family in the summertime, my dad and I shoot every night in our backyard. Um, you know, we have dinner, you know, whatever. I go to my parents and shoot my bow with my dad. And it's just something we do. I mean, we don't shoot for hours. I mean, we might shoot 20 arrows, but it gives us an opportunity to catch up on our day. Um, you know, a lot of what I was doing this year is testing out my max point blank with my arrows. And, and that's a theory that my dad taught me. And, um, so then, you know, practice max point blank shooting from different, uh, different ranges or unknown yardages and test that effectiveness. And, um, so it, it's really just about spending time with each other. And, and that's the great thing about bow hunting is you have intimate experiences, not only with animals such as elk in the woods or deer or whatever you're hunting because everything's so close, but with your family and your friends. And that's, that's, you know, once women catch into that, it's addicting. And that's why I think we're seeing such a large increase in female hunters out there. Well, I think that's a good answer. It's, it really is about the relationships as much as it is about the animals. And I think that's true if you're a man or a woman. I mean, if you, if you've been hunting for a long time and you haven't figured that out, uh, kind of leave me scratching, scratching your head because it, it mm-hmm. beca- it's about the people, you know, and those, the, the, the experiences that you share and the memories that you make. And, uh, it, it's just, uh, it's just really, really, uh, something that bonds you together for life. I mean, you go out with somebody or, or a group of people and have, you know, an epic adventure in the backcountry for a week. You might not see those people for 10 or 20 years, but I can guarantee mm-hmm. you when you get back together, you yep, you're going to relive some of those memories, you know, and, and it's going to, it's going to be like you were just there yesterday so absolutely well christy i gotta tell you that was a really fast uh 45 minutes for me (laughs) i certainly enjoyed talking to you and uh i hope that we can have you back again sometime sounds like maybe uh in august we need to do it again and have you maybe with a few of those calls that you're coming out with and have you do absolutely some audio demos for us and and do a few calling sequences and get people kind of primed and ready for elk season I would love to do that, Christian. You just let me know and I'll be there. I appreciate your time. Yeah, I appreciate yours. Thanks a lot. Have a great day and I wish you all the continued success in 2017. I appreciate it all. I'll talk to you soon. Okay, bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Peterson's Bowhunting Radio, the official podcast of hardcore bowhunters. Pick up the latest issue of Peterson's Bowhunting on your local newsstand or check us out on the web at bowhuntingmag.com.